Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 31, entitled The Anglo-Irish Treaty, 1921. I hope you like this and that you will share it with others on social media. And if you wish to become a patron of this podcast, please visit www dot land of the golden sunset dot podbean dot com the nineteen twenty one Anglo Irish Treaty officially the articles of agreement for a treaty between Great Britain and Ireland was an agreement between the Government of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and representatives of the Irish Republic that concluded the Irish War of Independence. It provided for the establishment of the Irish Free State within a year as a self-governing dominion within the community of nations known as the British Empire, a status the same as that of the Dominion of Canada. It also provided Northern Ireland, which had been created by the Government of Ireland Act 1920, an option to opt out of the Irish Free State, which it exercised. The agreement was signed in London on the 6th of December 1921 by representatives of the British Government, which included Prime Minister David Lloyd George, who was head of the British delegates, Lord Birkenhead, Austin Chamberlain, Winston Churchill, Sir Lamming Worthington Evans, Sir Gordon Hewart, and Sir Hammer Greenwood, and by representatives of the Irish Republic, Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith, Robert Barton, Eamon Duggan, and George Gavin Duffy. Providing secretarial assistance for the British were Thomas Jones and Lionel George Curtis, and for the Irish were Erskine Childers, Fionnán Lynch, Dermot O'Hegarty, and John Smith Charters. Robert Barton, 1881-1975, was an Irish nationalist, politician, and farmer. He was the last surviving signatory. He died on the 10th of August, 1975, at the age of 94. A cousin of Erskine Childers, he was born in County Wicklow, into a wealthy Irish Protestant landowning family of Glendalock House. Educated in England at Rugby and Oxford, he became an officer in the Dublin Royal Fusiliers at the outbreak of the First World War. He was stationed in Dublin during the 1916 Easter Rising and came into contact with many of its imprisoned leaders in the aftermath while on duty at Richmond Barracks. He resigned his commission in protest at the heavy-handed British government suppression of the revolt and then joined the Republican movement. The Irish representatives had plenipotentiary status, negotiators empowered to sign a treaty without reference back to their superiors, acting on behalf of the Irish Republic, though the British government declined to recognise that status. As required by its terms, the agreement was approved by a meeting of the members elected to sit in the House of Commons of Southern Ireland and separately by the British Parliament. 
In reality, Dáil Éireann, the Legislative Assembly of the de facto Irish Republic, first debated, then approved the treaty. Members then went ahead with the meeting. Though the treaty was narrowly approved, the split led to the Irish Civil War, which was won by the pro-treaty side. The Irish Free State, as contemplated by the treaty, came into existence when its constitution became law on the 6th of December 1922 by a royal proclamation. The treaty's main clauses were as follows. Crown forces would be withdrawn from most of Ireland. Ireland was to become a self-governing dominion of the British Empire, a status shared by Australia, Canada, Newfoundland, New Zealand and the Union of South Africa. As with the other dominions, the King would be the head of state of the Irish Free State and would be represented by a Governor-General. Members of the new Free State's Parliament would be required to take an oath of allegiance to the Irish Free State. A secondary part of the oath was to be faithful to His Majesty King George V, his heirs and successors by law, in virtue of the common citizenship. Northern Ireland, which had been created earlier by the Government of Ireland Act, would have the option of withdrawing from the Irish Free State within one month of the treaty coming into effect. If Northern Ireland chose to withdraw, a boundary commission would be constituted to draw the boundary between the Irish Free State and Northern Ireland. Britain, for its own security, would continue to control a limited number of ports known as the Treaty Ports for the Royal Navy. The Irish Free State would assume responsibility for a proportionate part of the United Kingdom's debt as it stood on the date of signature. The treaty would have superior status in Irish law. That is, in the event of a conflict between it and the new 1922 constitution of the Irish Free State, the treaty would take precedence. The Irish Boundary Commission, as called for in the Anglo-Irish Agreement, met in 1924-25 to to decide on the precise delineation of the border between the Irish Free State and Northern Ireland. The 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty, which ended the Irish War of Independence, provided for such a commission if Northern Ireland chose to secede from the Irish Free State, an event that occurred as expected two days after the Free State's inception on the 6th of December 1922. The governments of the United Kingdom, of the Irish Free State and of Northern Ireland were to nominate one member each to the Commission. When the Northern government refused to cooperate, the British government assigned a Belfast newspaper editor to represent Northern Irish interests. The Provisional Border in 1922 was that which the Government of Ireland Act 1920 made between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Most Irish nationalists hoped for a considerable transfer of land to the Free State on the basis that most border areas had nationalist majorities. However, the Commission recommended relatively small transfers and in both directions. This was leaked to the Morning Post in 1925, causing protests from both Unionists and Nationalists. In order to avoid the possibility of further disputes, 
the British, Irish Free State and Northern Ireland governments agreed to suppress the overall report. And on the 3rd of December 1925, instead of any changes being made, the existing border was confirmed by W.T. Cosgrove for the Irish Free State, Sir James Craig for Northern Ireland and Stanley Baldwin for the British government as part of a wider agreement which included a resolution of outstanding financial disagreements. This was then ratified by their three parliaments. The Commission's report was not published until 1969. W.T. Cosgrave said at the time that he believed that it would be in the interests of Irish peace that the report should be burned or buried because another set of circumstances had arrived and a bigger settlement had been reached beyond any that the award of the Commission could achieve. The final agreement between the Irish Free State, Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom was signed on the 3rd of December 1925. Later that day, the agreement was read out by Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin in the House of Commons. The agreement was enacted by the Ireland Confirmation of Agreement Act that was passed unanimously by the British Parliament on the 8th and 9th of December. Effectively, the agreement was concluded by the three governments and the Commission then rubber-stamped it. So the publication or not of the Commission's report became an irrelevance. The agreement was then formally registered with the League of Nations on the 8th of February 1926. The Commission was made up of the following appointments. Justice Richard Fitham of South Africa as chairman, appointed by and representing the British government. Owen McNeill, Minister for Education, appointed by and representing the Irish Free State Government. Joseph R. Fisher, a unionist newspaper editor, author and barrister, appointed by the British government to represent the Northern Ireland government. A small team of five assisted the Commission in its work. Under Article 5 of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the Irish Free State was to assume liability for a fixed share of existing UK debt. Estimated to have been 80% of the Irish Free State GDP, the Irish Free State was subsequently released from this sizeable obligation as a concession for the acceptance of permanent partition of the island and keeping the existing border. There was, however, one other debt for which the Irish Free State remained liable, the outstanding debts relating to bond-financed land purchase schemes in Ireland, roughly 40% of Irish Free State GDP. Ireland was the only part of the UK where this policy was implemented and the scale of the purchase programme had restricted government policies in other areas such as education reform in Britain. After the Irish Free State was established, the newly created Irish government faced financial challenges and had to rely on short-term borrowing from Irish banks for the first few months of its existence. There were also difficulties in raising and collecting taxes in the early years due to evasion and avoidance. Initial inquiries made by the new Irish Free State Department of Finance to the Irish banks and the Dublin Stock Exchange about long-term borrowing 
suggested that a UK guarantee would be essential for a loan flotation. That is the offering of credit and mortgages to be successful. Yet, these views proved to be incorrect and the first national loan worth 10 million sterling was in fact oversubscribed. Contemporary opinion was positive. The Economist noted on the 8th of December 1923 how the Irish Free State had restored order within its boundaries and reorganised its economic and political administration. It went on to state that the 10 million loan had been fully subscribed by the public, highlighting how this internal loan meant that there was no need for external borrowing, signalling public confidence in the new state. The article in The Economist also argued that this sent a signal abroad and would do much to wipe out the unhappy impression created by the civil war following independence. Subsequent national loans mainly traded at a premium and yields ranged between 3.5 and 5.5%. In comparison, UK yields ranged between 2.7 and 4.8% over the same period, and only in 1934 was there any discernible premium on Irish free state government bonds relative to the UK. After the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, Eamon de Valera resigned, criticising the oath of allegiance to the British monarch. Part of the oath was to be faithful to His Majesty King George V, his heirs and successors by law, in virtue of the common citizenship. In the Doyle vote which followed, the treaty was passed and accepted by a majority of seven votes. Dev, as he was popularly known, withdrew with his followers in an angry mood, saying, This was not what brave Irishmen gave their lives for. Better we continue the fight and complete the job. The IRA was formed soon after, and a futile struggle ensued in a civil war against their own. Their former colleagues and friends in the newly formed Irish Free State Army, and this war went on until May 1923. Two people who had signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty were now dead. Arthur Griffith died of a heart attack and Michael Collins was shot dead in Bail by a sniper's bullet. Both were dead within a short time of each other in August 1922. In 1926, De Valera and his Republican allies set up a new political party which was called Fianna Fáil in order to contest the general election of 1927. The Irish Free State Party was led by W.T. Cosgrave and the new Fianna Fáil party was headed by Eamon de Valera. Common na as the Free State Party became known, won the election and W.T. Cosgrave was appointed President or Prime Minister. A tough policy had to be pursued by him and his ministers to restore law and order. This was done by arresting members of the IRA in large numbers and executing 77 known activists. This action led to a charge being levied at the new government that they were now acting like the British. When the general election of 1932 came around, the government were voted out 
and the Fianna Fáil party were elected to government with de Valera as chief or Taoiseach. One of the changes he made was to dismiss the commissioner of the new police force, known as Angarda Siakana. When he was sacked, Ono Duffy now formed a new local brigade known as the Blue Shirts. This force spread to many districts, where it was opposed by the IRA sympathisers, and many pitched battles had to be quelled by the authorities. The Blue Shirts were a parliamentary organisation in the Irish Free State, founded as the Army Comrades Association in Dublin on the 11th of August 1932. The group provided physical protection for political groups such as Common Gale from intimidation and attacks by the IRA. Some former members went on to fight for the nationalists in the Spanish Civil War after the group had been dissolved. Most of the political parties whose meetings the Blue Shirts protected would merge to become Fine Gael, and members of that party are still sometimes nicknamed Blue Shirts. The new government moved to ban both the IRA and Blue Shirts and to declare them illegal organisations. Owen O'Duffy, 1890-1944, was an Irish revolutionary, military commander and police commissioner who later became a fascist leader briefly leading Fine Gael before resigning, then departing for Spain, where he led a brigade of Irish volunteers in the Spanish Civil War. O'Duffy was the leader of the Monaghan Brigade of the Irish Republican Army, IRA, and a prominent figure during the Irish War of Independence. In his capacity, he became Chief of Staff of the IRA in 1922. He accepted the Anglo-Irish Treaty and served as a general in the National Army in the Irish Civil War, on the pro-treaty side. O'Duffy became the second commissioner of the Garda Siakana, the police force of the new Irish Free State. After the Civic Guard mutiny and the subsequent resignation of Michael Staines, he had been an early member of Sinn Féin. He was elected as Choctadala for Monaghan, his home county, during the 1921 election. After a split in Sinn Féin in 1923, he became associated with Common Gael and led the movement known as the Blue Shirts. After the merger of various pro-treaty factions under the banner of Fine Gael, O'Duffy was the party leader for a short time, before leaving the party in 1934. O'Duffy was attracted to the various fascist movements on the continent, he raised the Irish Brigade to fight for Francisco Franco during the Spanish Civil War as an act of Catholic solidarity and was inspired by Benito Mussolini's Italy to found the National Corporate Party. Michael Joseph Staines, 1885 to 1955, was an Irish Republican and politician. He was born in Newport, County Mayo, where his father Edward was serving as a Royal Irish Constabulary officer. Staines was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and on its Supreme Council from 1921 to 1922. He served as Quartermaster General in the GPO during the 1916 Easter Rising and was later interned with his fellow insurgents at Frangok internment camp in Wales. When Staines was released from internment in Frangok, he collaborated with Eamon de Valera, James Ryan, Eamon Duggan and others in founding the New Ireland Assurance Collecting Society in furtherance of the Sinn Féin policy 
of investment in Ireland. In his Bureau of Military History witness statement, Frank Thornton, one of Michael Collins' intelligence operatives, described how the company was founded and operated, which resulted in the formation of the New Ireland Assurance Collecting Society. During an earlier period before 1916, in preparation for things to come, Arthur Griffith had, in his papers, frequently urged that something should be done to stop the flow of insurance premiums out of this country as part of a campaign to deal with the economic situation. It always was the first plank of Sinn Féin that everything Irish should be supported and that every effort should be made to keep the monies of the country circulating around amongst the people and re-employ those funds to create further industry. He was always very keen on trying to solve the problem of how to retain that 5 million sterling of insurance premiums which were being annually exported from the country. One of his biggest supporters in that direction was Mr. M. W. O'Reilly, who became the founder of an insurance society at a later stage. Michael Collins, Dr. Jim Ryan, Liam Tobin, Eamon de Valera, and late Dick Coleman, Michael Staines, and myself became the prime movers in bringing this idea to fruition. Michael Staines was elected Director for Supply for Sinn Féin on the 27th of October, 1917. He was also elected as Sinn Féin MP for Dublin, St. Mitchin's constituency, at the 1918 general election. He attended Dáil Éireann, working closely with the legal side of government, as well as becoming a Dublin Corporation alderman. He was re-elected in 1921 and 22 for the North Dublin West constituency and later served in the Free State Senate. He is perhaps best remembered as the first commissioner of the Garda Síochána, of which he said, The Garda Síochána will succeed not by force of arms or numbers, but on their moral authority as servants of the people. Appointed in April 1922, he was forced to retreat from the Kildare depot during the Civic Guard mutiny by recruits the following month. Staines was replaced as commissioner by Ono Duffy in September 1922 to February 1933. Prior to the formation of the Garda Shilkana, Staines and O'Duffy had acted as liaisons between the RIC and the Irish Republican Police during the truce which preceded the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Colonel Eamon Ned Broy, 1887 to 1972, was successively a member of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, the Irish Republican Army, the National Army and the Garda Síochána of the Irish Free State. He served as Commissioner of Gardaí from February 1933 to June 1938. Broy was a double agent within the Dublin Metropolitan Police with the rank of Detective Sergeant. He worked as a clerk inside G Division, the intelligence branch of the DMP. While there, he copied sensitive files for the IRA leader Michael Collins and passed many of these files on to Collins through Thomas Gay, the librarian at Cable Street Library. On the 7th of April 1919, Broy smuggled Collins into G Division's archives in Great Brunswick Street, now Pierce Street, enabling him to identify G-men, six of whom would be killed by the IRA. Broy supported the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 
and joined the National Army during the Irish Civil War, reaching the rank of Colonel. In 1925, he left the army and joined the Garda Síochána. Eamon Broy was president of the Olympic Council of Ireland from 1935 to 1950. In government, Fianna Fáil had to make some very tough decisions to maintain law and order in the country. They had to arrest and imprison many of their old comrades in arms, and in some cases executions were carried out, including Thomas Hart and Patrick McGraw. Hart was just 25 years old at the time of his arrest and execution. In 1938, Patrick McGraw was the IRA's adjutant general. He was also a veteran of the 1916 Easter Rising, and a bullet remained lodged in his chest from that time. Hart, McGrath and Tom Hunt were tried by a military tribunal, established under the Emergency Powers Act 1939. All three men were represented in court by Sean McBride. They challenged the legislation in the High Court, seeking a writ of habeas corpus, and ultimately appealed to the Irish Supreme Court. The appeal was unsuccessful. At that time, there was no right to appeal the findings of a military tribunal. Tom Hunt's death sentence was commuted. Hart and McGrath were executed by firing squad at Dublin's Mountjoy Prison on the 6th of September 1940. The three men had been arrested after a gun battle on the 16th of August 1940 with the Garda Special Branch, in which Sergeant McKeown and Detective Highland were shot dead, and Detective Brady was also wounded. On the 9th of March 1932, Eamon de Valera was elected President of the Executive Council of the Irish Free State. He would be Prime Minister, titled as President of the Executive Council, until 1937, and as Taoiseach after 1937, for 21 years the first 16 years of which were uninterrupted. The ban on the Irish Republican Army was lifted. The oath of allegiance to the British Crown was abolished and the office of Governor-General was greatly demoted. In May 1936, de Valera abolished Shannad Éireann, Irish Free State. At that time, he also announced his intention to draw up a new constitution. On the 1st of July 1937, the Irish people adopted the new Constitution of Ireland. This new Constitution was Republican in all but name. The Constitution claimed that the state consisted of the entire island of Ireland and the office of Governor-General was replaced by the President of Ireland. De Valera was able to succeed with this tactic as the 1930s had seen a change in Britain's relationship with her colonies the Statute of Westminster had declared a national law to be as valid as one from Westminster. And so the Houses of Commons, stroke Lords, no longer had a role in turning national bills into law. It was a delicate political move, but one which de Valera managed to execute without major disruption. In 1938, de Valera also negotiated the return of the treaty ports from Britain. So when the Second World War was declared in 1939, Ireland remained neutral and was rebuked for so doing by Winston Churchill. In a radio broadcast, de Valera replied, reminding him of a small nation 
that stood alone for several hundred years against aggression. Later on, de Valera praised Churchill for resisting the temptation to violate Irish neutrality. It is indeed hard for the strong to be just to the weak, but acting justly always has its rewards, he said, by resisting his temptation in this instance. Mr. Churchill, instead of adding another horrid chapter to the already bloodstained record of relations between England and this country, has advanced the cause of international morality an important step. shall be made a nation once again. 